Our gracious God, we thank you that we can join together this morning for Sunday school and to continue to look into your word. And Father, even as we wrestle uh, with hard truths, may we remember that uh, through that comes great comfort. And so may we have ears to hear and eyes to see your goodness. And may we learn more and more to rest in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am going to attempt, (laughs) uh, I guess, both in Sunday school and worship this morning to handle large portions of Scripture. So, uh, you know, I think uh, Elvis Presley was talking about me when he said, fools rush in, so let's rush in and uh, give it a shot. I'm not going to read Job 38, 39, and 41. Um, That would take a lot of time, Uh, but... I'll read key verses as we work our way through this morning because we're we're trying to handle uh, the the gist and flow of these three chapters. Now, as we begin, my question to you is, have you ever uh, envisioned what you would do if you could spend an hour, a day, a week, or a month with Jesus? You thought about the questions you would ask, conversations you'd want to have. Have you ever thought about that, you know? if you, had an, if you had an audience with the Almighty, how would you use that time? I've thought about it. And of course, it's always questions, things I want to know, uh, things I struggle to know the right answer about. Uh, but that's actually what Job has the opportunity to do in the passage we look at this morning. He gets that audience, that opportunity to have a conversation with God, something he's been asking for for a long time. Now, last week we were in chapter 3, and this this week we're in chapter 38. We've skipped a little bit. Uh, So let me do my best to summarize what takes place in chapters uh, 4 through 37. Remember Job's friends showed up. We saw that last week. And... um, Initially, there's that seven days of silence, uh, but then they begin to speak. And Job's friends, meaning well, all continue to exercise that earthly wisdom that says, if you're suffering, if you're going through a hard time, you must have done something wrong, and God's punishing you. And if you could just figure out what you've done wrong, or, his friends really believe, stop pretending you don't know, and confess it and repent, everything will get better. And and the more Job denies that that's what's going on, the the more insistent they become that that's actually what's taking place. And as they do, Job increasingly digs in his heels and declares his innocence, and eventually he starts saying, you know what? I'm so innocent that God does owe me an explanation. And I'm ready to ask God the hard questions if I could just get an audience with him. And today he gets his opportunity. And we get to witness it. And and we're going to see that that God has not only been interested in proving Satan wrong, that's where we started, but that he's had plans and designs for Job all along as well. Uh, These these trials in Job's life are not about to go to waste. God's going to use them to instruct Job. And as Job learns the truth, he'll find out that it's in truth that that freedom is actually found. 
And so my goal as we look at these three chapters this morning is, is really just to drive home this point. God finally gives Job his audience and demonstrates that Job's words have been both sinful and foolish uh, as he has been declaring uh, that he has been mistreated by God. So that's what we're going to do, we're going to look at. And, and really there's, there's two rounds, um, two matches uh, of, of this sort of wrestling match between uh, Job and God. And I want to jump into uh, round one uh, in chapters 38 and 39. Um, it says that, that God answered him out of the whirlwind. Chapter 38, verse 1, um, and, uh, and 40, uh, and sorry, and uh, yeah, 40, verse 6. So what do you think of when you think of whirlwind? Elijah. Elijah. Good. What happens with Elijah? He gets caught up in the whirlwind, right? It's just this kind of gentle little dust devil kind of rolling by. Oh, no? Yeah. What do you think of when you think of whirlwinds that pick people and things? Tornado. Yeah, this is the image here, right? It's not this gentle little uh, thing that you kind of see on desert roads driving by. No, this is more like a, a hurricane or a, or a tornado. Uh, and, and that's indeed how, how the Bible uses this language. Um, they're often terrifying storms. They are often identified with God's terrifying judgment. And how would you feel if you said, I have some questions for God, and then you found out that God was waiting for you over in that tornado, and all you had to do was walk up to it and start talking? Scared to death. Yeah, this is not that still small voice that Elijah heard, right? This, this is God's in the hurricane and God's in the tornado. Come on up and ask your questions. That's the image. And Job has been asserting for some time that he has some questions and God owes him some answers. And look how God responds. Chapter 38, verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now, this is rhetorical. He's, he's, not, actually, he's not saying, so, who's there? I, I can't see. He's saying, who do you think you are? Who is the creation to interrogate the creator? And then look at verse 3. Uh, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. This, this word for dress is not... The, it's not like, okay, it's morning time, take off your pajamas and put on your day clothes. The, the word is actually more gird. Where does that come from? Anybody? Yeah, this, or, yeah battle or often a wrestling match. Um, it's gird on, uh, get your clothes tight for, for, for battle, for a wrestling match. Um, gird for action. God is basically saying, you and I are about to do some wrestling, so get ready. Let's wrestle through this together. Who does that remind you of? Jacob. God likes wrestling, evidently. Uh, And in the ancient world, wrestling matches were sometimes used to figure out who's right and who's wrong. Let's let's take this outside. Gird up for battle. Let's, Let's have a little wrestling match. Uh and see who's, who's right here. 
But this isn't going to be a physical wrestling match like it actually was with Jacob. Uh, God is challenging Job to a mental wrestling match. It's a battle of wisdom, or (laughs) you knew I was going to go here, (laughs) a battle of wits, right? Uh, They're going to have competing assessments of, of, of how things should be, competing views of the world, competing wisdoms. Job has challenged God's wisdom, and so God is about to defend it. Uh, Proverbs 8 tells us that God's wisdom is demonstrated in creation, and so, so that's where God's going to start. He's going to look around at his handiwork, look at the earth and, and the heavens above, and he's, he's, he's going to ask Job, does your understanding cause these things to be? And explain everything. And so the first thing God does to demonstrate his wisdom is he looks at the earth, verses uh, 4 through 21. Uh, look at verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Okay. I was, uh, Steve and I were talking about J. Vernon McGee uh, yesterday. Uh, my all-time favorite quote from J. Vernon McGee is, this is God's universe, and in his universe he does things his way. You might have a better way, but you don't have a universe. And uh, this is essentially what God is saying. Uh, who, 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 who created everything? Why is this so important? What has Job claimed to understand? What is, God's, God turns to creation, turns to the created universe, the world around him, the and, and he's going to talk to Job about this. What does Job claim to understand? Why does God need to talk about the earth and creation? Who's claimed to know how things do and should work in creation, in, in life? Who's yeah, who's claimed it? I guess they both do. <laughs> yeah. But, but Job has, has, has claimed to say... God, you're not doing things right. That's not, which is, which is claiming the prerogative to say how things should be versus how they are. And, and, and he's essentially telling, telling God, you're messing up. Uh, and, and so God's going to give Job, okay, well, you seem to know how everything works. You seem to know about creation better than I do, about this world and about life. So look at verse 18. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare to me if you know this. God's looking at creation and not simply demonstrating his power as creator. That would be enough. But he's saying, Job, do you really understand everything the way you claim you do? God is demonstrating, he's demonstrating through creation that there are things beyond Job's understanding. Exactly. It's, it's the same thing, isn't it? it it's who, right? Um, uh, he, he's, we, we study, think about the scientists, right? Through the scientific revolution and everything. They're, they're struggling day by day to understand creation. Not to make it, but simply to understand its intricacies. 
right? You think about all of, all, all of genes and mutations and germs and viruses, bacteria, all of these things. Uh, and then you get into physics and, and, and atomic particles and subatomic particles and all these things. And, and, and the greatest scientists, the greatest minds on the earth aren't struggling to make this. They're struggling to understand it, not design it, but to understand the one who did, right? The, the, the sheer vastness of its intricacy and its brilliance, this is what God is doing. He's turning to Job's, do you even understand how it works, let alone take responsibility for making it? Then he goes on in verses 22 through, 20, uh, through 38, and, and he turns Job's eyes heavenward towards the sky, and he looks at the clouds. Verse 22, he says, Have you entered the storehouses of snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? Job, are, are you going to take responsibility for the rains, the snow, or for driving back an enemy with hailstones from the sky? As if the things that Job has touched on the earth weren't enough, God, God taking Job to the heights of the skies and asked him to explain the mysteries of snow and rain and hail. Surely Job must have the power to water the earth, to thwart enemies, uh, and to block the sun. If, if, he under, if, if he has such knowledge and comprehension of, of the earth and is willing to hold even God himself accountable, surely these things are within Job's power. And what about the stars? Look at verse 31. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? The message is simple, verse 33. Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on earth? Job, look at the sky. These are the stars that, that, that uh, ships sail by and navigate by. They, they move in their seasons and their courses throughout the night, throughout the sea. Do you put them in their courses? Do you make sure they're in the right place each night? And again, it's tied to wisdom. Look at verses 36 and 38, or through 38. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Job, if you've got everything figured out, watering the earth should be no problem for you. Turning a, a dust bowl into a variable garden should be as easy as snapping your fingers. And then in chapter 38, verse 39, through, through most of 39, he turns to the animals. He's focused on the elements of nature, the sea, the mountains, the stars, the sky. And God now turns to the creatures that Job shares the world with. Do the animals of the world depend upon Job for their provision? Verse 39 and following, do, do the lions and the ravens wait for you to feed them? Verses 39, uh, chapter 39, uh, um, verse 1. Are the mountain goats waiting for you to give birth? Are they unable to, to, to birth their younglings without you? How about the wild donkeys 
verses 5 through 8. Uh, do they depend upon Job for their freedom? Verse 9, what about the wild ox? Can you tame the wild ox? Talks about the ostrich, the mighty horse that laughs at at things that terrify man. He talks about the eagles and the hawks. Job, do you feed them? Up in the mountains, up in the high trees, up do you feed? And, 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 then he, and then there's this focus on those birds. They teach us a lot because they, they put man in his place because what have what's happened to mighty men? In battle, kings that 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 nations revered and feared when when they're hit with an arrow and they die on the battlefield, who feeds upon their body? The birds. God laughs at the might of men by feeding the birds of the mountains with the mighty men of the earth. In other words, man is not so half, uh, not half so revered by the rest of creation as he is in his own estimation. I think what God is doing is what Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians 2. He, he's considering the wisdom of the wise as mere foolishness and folly. And his question is simple. Job, can you account for all of this? This, this is how the creation depends upon me. This is, this is what's on my plate, what I have set in its courses and I have to deal with every day. Are, are you ready to switch seats with me? And as he concludes his, uh, final, uh, his first speech, he gives Job an invitation. He, uh, he says in, in chapter 40, verse 2, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. He says, okay, Job, I've said my piece. Go ahead. Here's what you've been waiting for. Answer me. This is, the, this is what Job's been waiting for, the opportunity to put God on the stand and demand an answer. Here's his chance to speak to God so, so long as he remembers to whom he's speaking. And the question is, will, that, will the creation respond to the creator and question his ways? And what's really interesting is if we had time uh, to, to, to follow all of this through, we'd actually see that, um, that, that Job has been silent since chapter 31. There's a fourth counselor, a fourth friend who shows up named Elihu. And, um, and he starts to rebuke Job's counselors and to rebuke Job. And, and each three times he gives Job an opportunity to respond and Job doesn't. He's been silent for, for I think eight chapters now, something like that. And, and, and through this, uh, through all of this, he hasn't said a word. And now God says, okay, Job, now's your chance. I'll be quiet for a little while and you answer me. And so Job finally speaks, well, sort of, chapter uh, chapter 40, verses 4 and 5. He has a short and simple response. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Finally, given the opportunity to speak, Job realizes 
He's already spoken too much. Because in speaking, Job has... He's not just asked for mercy. He's not just lamented. He's not just asked for help. He's accused God of evil, of wickedness. And and he picked up steam as he went on. And and now he remembers that, that he is the creation. He's not the creator. And his understanding is limited. He says only enough to explain that he has nothing to say. I place my hand over my mouth. I'll stop my foolishness now. And it's at that point that one's tempted to, to hope that this is all finally over. But not so fast. There's round two. Before we move on, let's be clear exactly what Job has confessed to this point. What has he admitted? What has he said and what hasn't he said? Okay. Has he? Mm-hmm. Okay. Vile. Okay. Not sure what the word, yeah. He, I, think, I think mine says insignificant or something like that. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm a small account, yeah. Vile. Okay. What else? What is he... S- what what really has he admitted at this point and what hasn't he? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, Right. Yeah, so to a great extent, uh, you're right. He's he's admitting that his thinking's been wrong, that he doesn't have the answers, and maybe we say it this way, that he's spoken where he shouldn't have. In other words, at this point, he's simply acknowledging that, that, that there are things he said that he shouldn't have. What he hasn't really gotten to is what he should have said but hasn't. Um, there's two sides. Um, he's acknowledged in the first round that, that it was not reasonable to believe that the Almighty Creator has to give an account to his creation. But he's going to have to admit more than simply that was, that was unreasonable, that was illogical to expect. It was actually sinful. Now, remember, I, I said at the beginning, uh, when it says that Job was upright and blameless, it doesn't mean that he was without sin. Uh, in, in, in chapter 40, verse 6, God essentially summons Job back into the ring. After Job answers, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, he says, okay, round two. Let's go. 
And the second round is meant to drive Job the rest of the way, not just to recognition, but to repentance. He moves from Job's lack of power over creation to his judgment of God. Look at verse 8. Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you might be right? Because Job has actually accused God of, of doing evil things, un, uh, unrighteous things, what is wrong. And, and God can't let that slide. How would that serve Job to go on thinking that, that, that well, yeah, maybe God's done something wrong, but, you know, he is the creator. Who am I to respond? That's, that's not enough, is it? It's a front to God's holiness, to his character. God's character does need to be vindicated. Now, is this the first time God's character has, has been attacked? The first time God's been accused of wickedness? No. What? It, it happened in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? Who attacked God's character in the Garden of Eden? Satan. That's right, Joshua. Good. Do you remember what, do you remember how? Do you remember what he said about God? Okay, tell me what you remember and we'll go from there. You got it. What do you remember? That's right. Good. Now, does, does Satan say that's a good thing or a bad thing to become like God? It's a good thing. And who does he say has, has been keeping this good thing from Adam and Eve? Right. What is he saying there? God's been keeping something good from you, doesn't he? You're right. God's been keeping something good for you, from you. He attacked God's character. Um, and he, he invites Adam and Eve to join him in that judgment, doesn't he? And then, and then what happens after Adam joins Satan in that judgment and God calls him to an account? How does Adam respond? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, they knew that they were open. Right, they knew uh, that their eyes were opened. Um, it, it, this is my theory. This is not fact I, or biblical fact proven. It's my theory. But they took fig leaves and, and covered themselves. I think those were actually the leaves on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's kind of like the kid who, who turns to, to mom and says, I haven't been eating cookies and there's chocolate all around, Right. Uh, what tree, you know, as they're wearing leaves from it? Um, it's my theory anyway. Um, they cover their, their nakedness. God comes and he asks Adam, what happened? And Adam says, what? More than that. 
What? That woman that... you God, if we're really going to talk about this, where did it all start? You started this, God. You gave me this woman. <laughs> yeah. He lays blame at God's feet. He sides with Satan. God, really, the one who's not good here is you. Now, this pattern is repeated in the book of Job. Who accuses God of, of doing evil first in the book of Job? Satan. It's just like in the garden, right? You're, you're bribing people. You're not, you're not actually winning people. You're bribing them, right? The only reason, the only reason you have Job on your side is because you, 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 you give him so much money, he'd be an idiot not to follow you. He's accused God of, of, of wickedness. And he does that again in chapter 2. And, and, then it, and then by the end of the book, who is siding with Satan that God is really at fault here? Job, like Adam, is saying, yeah, God's the problem. Job's claim the prerogative of, of God to judge good and evil, and he's demanding that God bow down and serve him in, in, in his way of doing things. And that really gets at what it means to accuse God of wrong, to be angry at him. It, it's idolatry. It, it's, it's claiming that, that prerogative to, to, to make those judgments and demand God, God abide by your judgments. And and, and let me say two things here. First, this, this is natural. We, we all do this. Um, I, I don't mean to say, you know, if you're that one person out there who's ever done this, you know, I don't know what's going on with you. We've, we've all done it. But the, the flip side of that statement is to say uh, it's fallenly natural. This is, this is our sinful nature. This isn't good. Uh, and, and so we, we always need to make a distinction between saying we all struggle with this and saying it's right. Yeah, we, we all struggle with this every day. God, why do you do this? Why, I would have done it this way, which is, by the way, better. We can all identify with Job. It doesn't mean it's the right response. And so God responds in, in chapter 40 with what it truly means to be God. Verse 10, it means to be adorned with majesty. Verses 11 through 13, to, to judge in righteousness. And, and when Job can do all of these things, God will acknowledge that Job has the power to save. Verse 14. The power to save. Then I will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. I will acknowledge that you are the Savior when you can do these things. And this is actually leading into where God goes from here. Uh, verse 15 of chapter 40 through, through the end of chapter 41. Now, there's this sense in which Job can't ascend into heaven and prove all of these things. Uh, and, and so God says, okay, let me give you an opportunity to prove that you are able to save, that you are, are worthy of making these judgments, that you have um, majesty and righteousness and power that, that it would take to do all these things. 
Uh, who knows what a battle of champions is? So we had a battle of wits in round one. Round two is going to be a battle of champions. Who knows what a battle of cha champions is? Think David and Goliath. What, what happens there? Well, that's that's the end result. But what's what's <laughs> you're right. Uh, but what's going on there? I mean, were the were David and Goliath the only two people there? Yeah, you had two armies on, on either you know either mountain. There's this valley in between, and and like, okay, we can either send the, all the troops out and and fight right, winner takes all, or we can each pick our best champion, send those two out to fight, and winner take all. Right, and that's what they decide to do. We'll just send our strongest guy. Oh, the Philistines say ours happens to be this nine-foot-tall giant with twelve fingers and twelve toes, and um, fortunately, a large forehead. Uh, yeah, and Israel's terrified, right? Because they don't. Nobody's willing to be that guy who goes out. God says, tell you what, let's, let's, let's have a battle. You want to be the savior of the world. Here's who you're going to have to fight. And, and so in, this, in, in, this, uh, in the remaining section, God's second challenge, he suggests that Job take on Behemoth, verse 15, and Leviathan, chapter 41, verse 1. Now, there have been a lot of attempts to identify what these animals are. Any anybody heard? Okay. You right? Uh, yeah. Okay. A long neck dinosaur, sauropod. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Dinosaurs. Yeah. What about Leviathan? Okay. Yeah, there's these, okay, I've heard those. Others? Uh, crocodile. Crocodile, yeah. Uh, sometimes land animals, uh, like a hippopotamus, rhinoceros, uh, crocodiles, uh, uh, dinosaurs, whales. Um, you're free to, to, to read through their description and speculate all you want. Um, when you look at the animal kingdom, you'll never find an animal that fits the descriptions perfectly. Here's another possibility, that, that these aren't actually two, but that they're one. Um, it's a terrible beast that eats gra the grass of the earth, chapter 40, verse 15, but is just as comfortable in the water, verse 23 and chapter 41, verse 1. Um, in other words, it's possible that, that, that this is not an actual creature but a metaphorical one because he also breathes fire. Hmm. Is there an animal that is as comfortable on land as in the water and breathes fire? <laughs> yeah, this is, it's describing a dragon. It has scales of armor, um, breathes fire, Great teeth, comfortable in the water, comfortable on land. Um, but that, that's fitting for another reason. God's enemies are often described as a dragon. Egypt is called the dragon uh, in Isaiah. 
Uh, who else is called the dragon? Satan. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I think this is the best explanation. God is saying, uh, uh, notice how he closes, chapter 41, verses 33 and 34. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is on high. He is king over the sons of pride. (laughs) This one rules all the arrogant men of the earth. Sound like anybody? The ruler of this world, the prince of the power of air, of the air. This is the challenge that God is throwing down before Job. If you would have the prerogative that you want, if you, if, if you want to sit in my place, then you need to be the one who can save, and that means you need to be able to conquer the dragon, Satan himself. Here's the challenge, Job. Are you ready for the battle? Are you ready to be the savior, the champion, upon whom man places their hope and faith? That is, after all, what the book is about. The the real, the unseen battle going on is between Satan and God. Uh, Satan is is trying to, to crush God's ability to save sinners. He's trying to undermine that. And and it's coming down to Job and 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 in the midst of all that, Job's gotten pulled into this, and he and he's saying, "You know what? I've got a better way than God does." And God says, "Well, if that's the case, then your salvation and your hope is going to be dependent upon you, and you're going to have to conquer Satan, not me." That's what Adam failed to do. Adam rolled over like a puppy and got his belly scratched. He he just ate the fruit. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't put up a fight at all. Are you better than Adam? Do you really not need me? If round one was an offer to let Job speak as he claimed he wanted to, round two is an offer to Job to, to live free of God. But to live free of God is, is, is to be up against Satan on your own. Conquer behemoth, conquer Leviathan. If you can do that, then great. You, then you, you don't need me. Can you do it? If so, I'll step aside. But of course, such a challenge is ridiculous. Job can't do it, and that's the point. Job is lashed out. He's accused his only hope. He's, he's told the only one who can rescue him to leave him alone. He's accused God of evil and claimed the honor that is due to God alone. It's not just silly. It's not just irrational. It's sinful. And that's what Job needs to understand. Because if he understands that truth, truth has what power? To set you free. Job's not free in his accusations. He's imprisoned by them. And these are hard truths to hear in the midst of Job, Job. Job is enduring probably more suffering than any human has undergone to that point and will until Jesus comes. Um, I don't want to minimize his pain or ours. 
But, but misreading reality isn't freedom, it's prison. And so, next week, or sorry, not next week, in two weeks, we're going to conclude our, our short little series in Job, looking at how Job responds and what follows. Um, today, we, we want the accent to be on, on the reality that God isn't just dealing with Satan in this book. You know, the beginning of the book is, is this, this battle between God and Satan. Can, can God really um, have a people without bribing them? Can, can he succeed in what he said he would do, raise up a seed uh, that would follow him? That's the question. But as the book goes on, we realize that that's not the only thing going on in this book. That, that through all of that, while, while proving Satan wrong, he's actually going to do something in the life of his, of his son, Job, his child. And so he's lovingly driving Job to see more and more that it benefits him nothing if he gains the whole world but loses his soul. And, and so that's the lesson uh, that Job's learning. And, that, and quite frankly, those are the lessons that we learn through trials. And they're hard lessons. They're painful lessons. But they're important um, and so we're going to look. Uh, in, next week, I'm going to be in California. Um, we're going down for Kelsey Valdir's wedding. Um, uh, Pastor Collingridge is going to be out here, and so he'll teach Sunday school and he'll lead worship. So that's, that'll be fun. Um, and then on the 30th, we're going to conclude Sunday school, for, an, uh, and then we'll take a break for the summer, and, and we'll look at the final section of, of Job and see Job's response uh, to God's uh, discussion here. And, and then, and then, how God responds to Job's response. So, that's that's where we're headed. Any final questions before um, I close in prayer, or comments? Gucci. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, do you remember what, what, what Jesus tells Peter? Satan has asked to sift you, but I have prayed for you. And then, and when you return, right? There's no doubt in his mind. Because, because Jesus can accomplish more through grace with a sinner than the law can accomplish with a righteous man. That's, it's, God, his grace is powerful. So it's not that, that Peter's not going to fail. It's not that he's going to mess up. And in fact, going through those, those mess-ups and those accusations and those failures, right, actually do more to, to shape Peter's character and make him into the, the minister that God wants him to be than, than any success could have done. That's the crazy part. Um. That, that, that our Savior can even use our, our, our failings and our sin to actually bring about something glorious and beautiful. And that's what we're going to see at the end of Job. Some amazingly beautiful things happen at the end. So provided the Lord tarries, and we're back here together in two weeks, we'll, uh, we'll see what that looks like. Well, let's close in prayer. Our gracious God, you have loved us and cared for us, and so we thank you. 
You have put up with our accusations. You have put up with our folly. And you have been patient. And even when you answer us, the goal is always for our wisdom and our freedom in the truth. And so we pray that you would be patient with us, strengthen us, and help us to love you more. We thank you that we are not on our own against the dragon. We thank you that we have a better champion, that Jesus Christ has come into this world and he has slain the dragon, not through power, but by laying down his life. We pray this in his name. Amen.